Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I do. I, you know, I think about all the insanity going on in our world today, and I, I often think about, and you hear this often, what would I do if I was going through what I'm going through now without a solid rock? Because all of us go through garbage in this life. Jesus said it, in this life, you will have tribulation. But there's solid rock. I was thinking about this week uh, also, there's any number of times in my life, and now one of them as well, that you know, just kind of tragedy and oppression and things that surround you. And you, I often wonder, and yet it, for those that are only in the seen realm, those who dwell just in, with an earthly mindset, it is just tragedy compounded on tragedy. But somehow for the, for the person who's built their life on the solid rock of Jesus, it, you can kind of rise above that. Uh, the scripture, the text, the worship, the, the community that we have here take us to a 20,000 foot view and we can look down almost as if we know that we're in it but we're not of it. Somehow we can be separate from it and yet in it. It's a strange thing. It's almost like an out-of-body experience where you just, you know that you're there, but you also recognize that in most cases, there's just almost nothing you can do uh, when life comes at you, as the commercial says, the nation, it comes at you fast. Sometimes there's just nothing you can do to fix it. There's nothing you can do to rearrange it. You just have to trust. Uh, there's no doubt that probably pretty much everybody in here has some kind of situation, health complication, a relational issue, financial issue, whatever it is. So I just can't fix this. I can't make it right. So the scripture takes us, keep your mind set on things above, and it lifts us to 20,000 foot, a foot view. And then we can look down on what we're going on, what's going on on the earth, and we're participants as long as we're alive. So we have both. We have both perspectives. Right, So some say, well, you can't be so heavenly minded, you won't be any earthly good. I, I really think you have to be so heavenly minded so that you can be of earthly good, not only to yourself, but to people who are around you. Otherwise, you just wilt under the pressure of what can be satanic oppression. It can be, it can be all kinds of things. And sometimes even when we suffer from our own failures. So, it's good to be back with you. As many of you know, I was in Dallas this last week. We had our Tales from the Tour event at the Byron Nelson on Monday. Uh, I was able to speak a couple times that week, and we have a new, for those of your golfers, Ben Hogan's haunt was Shady Oaks. It's in Fort Worth, and it's, they have all of his old memorabilia there, and his, his shoes and his clubs, and I, I can't even describe how incredible it was. And, uh, and yet we have a fellowship right there. We had completely packed out in the morning, right there among Hogan's trophies and replicas of the US Open and the, the, all the Wanamaker trophies and everything like that. And here we are talking about Jesus. And in fact, I shared because it was, I wasn't planning on doing it, but they had a particular study that week and I actually shared with them what I'm gonna share with you this morning. Are you ready for this? Online folks, those who may be watching TV or right here, in the, you ready? We should pray, I guess. Lord, we, we need you. We desperately need you. We ask that you would do uh, an amazing work in our hearts, mine included. Lord, help this message. Lift us above the fray. Um, 
we need you. Worship does that. Community does that. But your word has a profound and can have a profound effect on those who simply have ears to hear and eyes to see. So, Lord, would you open eyes this morning and allow us to peer into the glory of your singular message, Christ in us, the hope of glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So as I was with you a couple weeks back, um, we talked about, uh, I entitled it, Death Was Always the Plan, and I want to revisit Luke 18, 31, just so you can reacclimate after the great messages that Paul gave. I got great feedback from that on faith, so now, now all of you are full of faith because of Pastor Paul. Thank you, Pastor Paul, for, uh, that's right, that's right. I, that's what I was told, that's what I was told. It was amazing. Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Then he, Jesus, took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And this is really the crux of where we're going to be headed even today and uh, next week. All things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man. And we know, Church of Red Door, what that means. He was claiming to be the Daniel 7 picture of the Son of Man who someone looked like a man and yet all authority and dominion and power and everything were given over to him. It's what Daniel had seen Oh, some 600 years before the time of Jesus. The Son of Man, everything that all these prophets have been seeing is going to be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. But the disciples... (laughs) They just didn't understand any of this. And the meaning of the statement at this point was hidden from them, as was clear by their reaction to the, not only the crucifixion, but even his arrest. And Peter, his denials, the three denials that Jesus predicted before the, before the cock would crow. And they just, said just, they just didn't understand or they didn't comprehend what Jesus was talking about. Now, these, had, these things had been written These things were clearly chronicled in all the prophets. And yet, who could have seen? Well, the Father had seen. Jesus had seen. Revelation 13, 8 says that all inhabitants will worship the beast and whose names have not been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Notice Lamb. We're going to talk a lot about that this morning. And the Lamb who was slain, NIV here, from the creation of the world. It was always the plan. Death was always the plan. It was chronicled in great detail how he would die, by what instrument he would die, crucifixion, by his beard being pulled out, that he would bleed out seven times. I mean, it was in such staggering detail in retrospect. But leading in, who could have understood that? I mean, obviously, God had established the sacrificial system It's clear, of those 613 laws, a big part of those 613 laws were the ceremonial tasks given to the priest to day in and day out stand out there and exercise these bloody rituals on behalf of the nation of Israel. And then, of course, on Passover, lamb after lamb after unblemished lamb would be, well, the knives would be put to the throats of those lambs even in those in, di- in the diaspora that had been really thrown out all over the Mediterranean area in that region. 
Could they have possibly fathomed that it was the fulfillment of everything God had always said was going to be the plan? It was always the plan. And that's what we're going to look at. Last thing I want to reshare is 1 Peter 1. Again, just trying to ground you in the thinking of where we're going this morning. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, they made careful search and inquiry. Imagine those men hundreds of years in advance of the time of Jesus, hundreds and hundreds of years. Moses, maybe upwards of 1,400 years uh, in advance of Jesus. I, I, sometimes I think we just think about that and you just put all the Bible characters and you kind of throw them all into one room and we don't realize that, you know, what's American now? 250 to 300 years, the experiment. I mean, this is four American experiments separated from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus. Even more than that, two, you know, you had a full 2,000 years from the time of Abraham and Jesus said, Abraham saw my day, 2,000 years before the time of Jesus. So they, they were making careful inquiry and search and trying to figure out what the Spirit of God was saying to them. Notice, it doesn't even say the Spirit of God. What did we learn a number of weeks back? The Spirit of Christ. The very Spirit of Jesus was already in the prophets prophesying of his own death, which again gives us an understanding that Jesus didn't just appear as a baby in a manger. He is the eternal one. He is, he is God. He's with the Father and with the Spirit, and, and he's a co-eternal. So this is not just Jesus coming to start a new religion. This is God in, in human flesh. Already the Spirit of Jesus in these prophets say, write this down, write this down. They were moved by the Spirit. Who could have imagined? And again, as I've told you many times, this for me is the strongest intellectual anchor. I've used that term all the time through the years because it shows me that even without the New Testament, the, the Old Testament, again, codified well in advance of Jesus, is plenty of indication that Jesus was the Messiah. And the early church, well, they were also working from the Old Testament. This is not a Gentile contrivance sometime way after the fact. And you'll see that in stark detail this morning. And that spirit of Christ within them was indicating what? His own sufferings. And, and, it doesn't finish there, and the glories to follow. Many of those glories are right here in this room. Some of your marriages have been saved and you've come to know Jesus and you have eternal life and, and things have turned around and oh yeah, there's persecution and all those kinds of things and oppression sometimes, but the glories have already begun, but they are going to be magnified exponentially when the lamb comes back, when the lamb comes back and we'll see that as well. Uh, this is, the guys don't have this. I just want to quickly note that John the Baptist in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, when he's, Jesus is coming down to him to be baptized, he looks up and under the inspiration of the Spirit says, behold, the Lamb of God. Again in verse 36, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. Now, again, do I, think, does I, do I think that John the Baptist really understand the fullness of what he's saying? I don't think so at all as would be indicated in Matthew 11, later on down the road, he, he would say, is this the Christ or should we look for another? I don't really think John at that point in time really understood the ramifications of what he was saying because he assumed that Jesus would have to take the throne and, and that the Romans would be overcome. But at this time, he looks up, again, under the inspiration as a prophet, behold, 
the Lamb of God. I don't think John the Baptist had any concept as to what he was saying in its fullness. Uh, no way could he have really understood. But as Jesus, through the, especially through the Gospel of John, begins to make statement after statement after statement about himself, it becomes strikingly clear that Jesus is not only claiming to be the one in whom all power and authority are being transferred over to by the Father, but that he's also going to be the suffering servant that Isaiah had seen, and well, we're gonna look at even as far back as Moses. Now, some of you have heard me teach on this. I, I'm asking you to step into this and own this. If you can own this, you can answer the question, you go to what church? Church, church of the door, of the white, red door, it sounds like a cult to me. And the reason we named it Church at the Red Door is that so people would say, why do you call it Church at the Red Door? And people ask that all the, I've been asked that time, I've been asked that hundreds of times and it gives me a brief opportunity, an elevator opportunity to a low floor, not to floor 86, but to from ground level to third floor, or third floor to ground level, they'll say, well, this is what that means. And I'm gonna describe it to you this morning just as Moses had described it, and we're gonna pair that with what Jesus said about himself, and I hope you will be staggered. Some of you know this well, but some, even, let's take a deeper dive this morning. Exodus chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12. These are instructions now, and where is Moses getting these instructions? He's getting them directly from God. And God has already spoken through the burning bush, and many believe that that's a theophany, that that's even Jesus, an incarnate, ain't the angel of the Lord, speaking from the burning bush. And Moses is told now to go back and let my people go. And... As we've said many times, Yul Brenner's response, you know, Pharaoh, I will not let your people go. That's still an indelible impression on my young formative mind to remember Cecil B. DeMille's movie there and that he was at his peak, Yul Brenner. I mean, he could be without a shirt and just those gold kind of things that he wore around his neck and all that. He could come out like this and who do you think you are, Moses? And the other plagues had already, well, they had already come upon the Egyptians. And as we talk about very often here, we know that Israel's story is our story. So when we see them coming out of Egypt, them going through, through their baptism and into the wilderness and potentially just a few cross, Caleb and Joshua of the original group, Eventually, some might even get through their wilderness discipleship, whatever you want to call it. I, I think of it in terms of my own life, my discipleship, and then cross the Jordan and then begin to move into the call that God has on each of our lives. Okay, so we know that template. We talk about it all the time. It's the, it's the very foundation for which I see my own life. I think about my own life being lived through the optics of Israel's story, and I think that's what Paul is exactly saying in 1 Corinthians 10. All these things happen to them for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Do you even think about that? Do you even, even remotely think that I could play a role in this cosmic drama to bring the ages to an end and usher in the return of Jesus. 
Let that settle for a minute. Were you caught up in things this week that really didn't have anything to do with the ushering in of the end of the age? Yes, we all have those things that we walk through and bills to pay and people to help and just stuff that goes on in life. And, you know, just some of it meaningful and some of it not so much. Let me say this again. Do you view your life as a, as a significant piece of the end of the ages. You'll live differently if you do. But there's a certain way that we are, we are both saved. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. We are both saved and called. Paul, very clearly, he, he marries. Many just get saved. They go through their baptism and they're, you know, they're saved. So now back to my life and it's, I'm going to live my life out. And, and yet, but we're also called. And we're gifted in unique ways that in community, missional community, play an integral part in the actual coming back of Jesus. But we have to know how to deal with Jesus. Not just what he did for us. How do I handle Jesus? And I know some of you say, well, we don't handle Jesus at all. He handles us. True. But I think we're told how we must engage Jesus. Maybe a better word. And Exodus 12 helps us understand. If you understand that Jesus is the lamb, then you'll understand that the instructions for the lamb would potentially be a prophetic view of what not only would happen to the lamb, but then how we should engage the slain lamb from the foundations of the earth. Does that make sense? Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. So again, what is Egypt representative of for us? Now this is not just a historical little review here. This is for me, Jeff Cranford, today, for you. If you'll, if you'll step into this unseen realm and say, I want to play a role in the cosmic drama to end all of the chaos and cha the chaotic age that I live in and that one day Jesus will return and we'll live in his forever kingdom I want to play a role. What role can I play? If you'll ask this, and this will be very meaningful. But this was in the land of Egypt. For us, this is the world. The world system. Not literally that I am, my feet are down on terra firma today. It's that I am in it, but I'm not of it. I'm above it. Not in terms of being better than, but. I'm above it. I don't have to live in the chaos, although I live in the chaos. It's strange, isn't it? And in it, but not of it. This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Now, why would that be so important? That the whole calendar would be reset based upon how they're about to deal with a, a lamb. That's weird. I challenge my Jewish friends with that all the time. What does this mean? What does this mean? Why the beginning of all the calendar reset? Why? Well, if I go to John chapter 3, what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? A man, you want to see these things? A man must be born again. What is, what is it to be born? It's to begin your calendar, if you will. 
I mean, we're celebrated. We're celebrating birthdays. I had a regional director here this yesterday. I'm just, you know, we send our birthday things, and you know, happy birthday. So excited that it's your birthday and all that. It was the beginning of days for you. It was the beginning of your calendar. So to be born again, in a way, this is already speaking to me. When you come to Jesus and you're baptized and you're filled with His precious Spirit, you are born again. You you now start a whole new well calendar, if you will. The beginning of days for you begins when you embrace Jesus. Now, when you go to church, now when you go to a Bible study, not when you just throw up something to, you know, the almighty deity up there, when you embrace Jesus and take him into your heart through repentance and baptism, and then you begin your wilderness journey, which is you trying to get rid of you well, the old you, so that the real you, the, the person that God created you to be, can em emerge. Because we have a lot of masks that we wear before Jesus, and we really don't even know who we are until Jesus shows us, well, here's what I created you for. Now, for a person with a materialistic worldview, that's just absurd. <laughs> that's just absurd, you know? I was watching something last night about our solar system, I just love that. I just, I, I, I'm, you know, my mind's always, I said 20,000 foot view. I guess I should go 20,000 light years view or whatever. I'm, all, I just, I'm just fascinated with our cosmos. And, I, and, and it was all the speculation about how, you know, we have our huge ice um, planets way out there, the gaseous ice planets on the very, on the very perimeter and how the solar winds come and they kind of strip the gas. That's why we have a, a more of a metallic kind of rocky earth that we are and all these things and the formation and the bombardment and how the meteors strike and all this and just all this, a lot of it's speculation because they change kind of through time, but you get this amazing, overwhelming picture of God's, well, God's creative forces and, and I'm just fascinated with it and, and, and the more I think about it, I go, there is such perfection in design. Could it be true that my own life has a design down to the, the infinite and the, the minuscule? Or is it just kind of a free-for-all? And if I have just a materialistic worldview, it's just a free-for-all, and I'm just here for a while. And I, Did you know you're composed of probably all the planets that we have in our solar system that part of your very DNA your physical body is actually uh, you probably have a little Jupiter dust in there and I mean I know that sounds absurd but that's really the the feeling you know over time all these particles and things and just Kepler's laws to, to, to unite this and how does that work it's either just some big grand chance or by the way they've studied other solar systems and they don't find anything like our solar system other, you know, there are other stars that have planets revolving around them, but nothing that even resembles what, everything that they've discovered. They said, ours seems to be a real anomaly. Lucky us. Or was it sovereign? Or was it planned? Is there a great designer? I said, of course there's a great designer because, well, one of the things that proves that to me is that he said, here's how it's going to go down. And it went down just like this. If God can tell us what's gonna happen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in advance down to precise, perfect, perfect details through fallen men who were searching and inquiring, 
He can do, well, he can do anything. Got a problem in your life? He can do anything. All things are possible. Well, it's going to be the beginning of months to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel. What does that mean to me when I speak to all the con- Now, at that point, remember, Israel's story is our story. Jesus now transfers that, go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And Paul and I had the privilege to baptize some seven people here the Monday before I went to Dallas this last time. It was fantastic. Some of you are here this morning. I saw Jim and others. Fantastic, awesome. You've gone out of the world and you've gone through your baptism and now you get to, well, you really get to begin your discipleship process by which Jesus begins to conform you to his image so that you can walk out the fullness of your calling. Don't think that you've just been baptized, you go back to your life now. It be, this is the beginning of days for you, not the end. And for them, it was just Israel, all the house of Israel. For us, it's the world. It's all nations, all nations, teaching them and instructing them and showing them everything that I've showed you. That was their task, same thing. On the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to the house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. Now, eat, so they're going to eat the lamb, they're going to kill the lamb, and then eat the lamb? That's strange. I thought this was just a sacrifice. Now, they're going to sacrifice it and eat it? Weird. Not nearly as weird as Jesus, at least for them, in John chapter 6. Why do you think Jesus came and began to speak and say, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, otherwise you don't have any part of me? You think that freaked them out? Of course it did. Is this a cannibalistic cult? What is this? And John 6, 6, 6, by the way, that's how I always remember that verse. John, because it's the man's response to that's too weird. I am anti that, antichrist. You think the sign of 666 is just the sign of man. John 666, and many disciples quit following him at that point because he's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Why was he saying that? Because he wanted them literally to pull him off the cross and begin to feed? No, clearly not. He's claiming to be the Lamb of God. The same thing under the inspiration of the Spirit that John the Baptist had seen. Not just eat my flesh, but now the second part of that, the covenantial, and that is that song referred to, the covenantial aspect of the blood by which we are sanctified and saved. And you'll see that even more specifically as we go through here. Again, let me say, allow me to say, please understand this. This was written hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. It was codified well in advance of the time of Jesus. Jesus is referencing back to something that had already been written, and the very custodians of these texts are the Jewish people to this day. And of course now many who follow Jesus who would call themselves Christians, custodians of these beautiful texts written in advance. Now. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. 
And you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it into the 14th day of the same month. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Now, you have to understand that at the moment that this is being practiced, some thirteen to 1,500 years later, by all those Jews that had come back for Passover and even those ones that are scattered throughout uh, the Mediterranean region, as I referred to a minute ago, please understand that at the exact moment that they are taking their lamb into their house on the 10th to try to take it for those, you know, until the 14th, they're to really check it out, make sure it doesn't have any blemish on it. Now you say, well, that's just some religious weird practice. Or did it signify that at those exact moments that Jesus would be, well, he would be going before Caiaphas, the high priest, and he, later he'd be going before Pilate, then he, they would be checking him out. So imagine this, as everyone is taking their lamb to see if it has any blemish on it, Jesus has now been taken into custody and they are now examining him to see if they can find any fault. And in the Gospel of Mark, it says their stories were all inconsistent and they got false witnesses. They couldn't come up with anything. And Jesus kept referring to himself as the Son of Man from Daniel 7. And he, and he said, are you God? And he said, I'm the Son of Man. And he, and he refers back to Daniel 7. All power and authority and dominion has been given over to me. And of course, Pilate doesn't understand any of that either. And but yet Pilate turns and says, I find no fault in him. Huh. And here I can imagine all these, all these faithful Jewish men and women going through looking for the blemish on their I find no fault in this one. At the exact moment, do you think that's by chance? The same day, the same period of time? Do you think that's by chance? Or was God setting up the cosmic drama in advance? Of course he was. Clearly he was. I find no fault. Verse 7. Moreover... They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Hence, church at the red door. Why are we church at the red door? Because we, we are a church that likes to symbolize our very existence by people being people who have walked through a door that has Jesus' blood covered on it a picture of his blood, well, dripping down a different kind of wood that would come many years later across. And in a, in a symbolic way, I have applied the blood of Jesus to the doorposts of my very life. I have applied the blood of the cross of Jesus to my life. And we as a church claim that. Does that mean that everybody that comes to church the red door will have done that? Well, they should, because what did we just learn back in the first part? Each one has to take the lamb for himself or herself. You're not saved just because you're a Catholic or because you're a Pentecostal or because you're a whatever, and we can get in all of our scuffles. You're saved because you as an individual, this is God's instruction on how to deal with the lamb. Each one has to take one, the lamb for himself. Examine it. I always tell people, they say, well, do I, tell me just what to do. I said, have you examined the lamb yet? Do you find any fault? Do your spiritual due diligence. Don't just jump into 
a religion because you want to, you know, feel saved or somehow feel. I mean, we love having you, but I'm begging you, do it for yourself, for you. Examining, did he meet the claims? Jesus was clear, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, and these clearly were the works in advance, then do not believe in me. Don't believe in him. When, how, how, when should you do this? Now. 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 There's a Seinfeld episode. I'm sorry. This stuff, this ongoing thing I can't turn off in my head, where Kramer decides that he's not going to speak anymore. He says, I'm not going to say anything more. And he goes, no more. And he goes, no more. Now. And he says, now, now, now. And he keeps saying now. Now he starts now. And it starts because he keeps messing up and talking. God says now. And how do you eat it? In haste. Don't wait. I used to think, well, this is the, this is the manipulative tactic of a, you know, backwoods preacher or something i can see him sweating out there and wherever you know you know you could be in a you could be in your car on the way home today and you may not make it home you don't know if you're going to live till tomorrow receive the lord jesus christ today and i'm saying i used to think ah, and now i go mm, not such a bad advice you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow so what is God telling you? If you've got the faith, I mean, do your due diligence, but once you come to the conclusion that Jesus was unblemished, then what does he say? Eat the flesh the same night. And so if you come through your baptism, do it now. 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 Do it now. And here's the part I love. And roasted with fire. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think symbolically throughout the entire Bible, you always see the Holy Spirit, you know, or you see the Godhead. It's fire. You see fire, 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 roasted with God's Spirit. Look, if you're going to a church and you or you feel church at the red door is not actually teaching you the word and it's, a, it's incomplete. I had the privileges last week to spend a night and a morning with a, a former president of a, a very large the, a school of theology in Dallas. And uh, we were talking about something. Somebody asked him a question about, you know, one of the kind of TV preachers that was not really, and he said, I will just say this. I won't criticize him, but I'll just say, at best, it's incomplete. In other words, they're not eating the whole thing. He didn't say it like that. But in my mind, I'm thinking, so if you feel like this is, not, this is incomplete in some way, then I'm offering you a, a, a narrative of Scripture that in some way is avoiding something or being incomplete, then it's not roasted with fire. It's not spirit-driven. I beg you, forget ceremony. Forget it. You take the lamb in and you learn, learn through personal study, through Bible ships, through Rooted, through all the different programs. Take it for yourself. I don't care if you're a teenager in here today or where you are, you're in the last stage of your, of your life. Do it in haste. Do it now. Don't wait. But make sure that it's inspired and roasted with fire by the Spirit. And they will eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs and don't eat it. And I could go in. I could just... Don't get me started. I, I, I'm never going to finish if I get too deep into some of it. But yeah, bitter herbs are involved in this. It's bitter when you start reading the word. 
You know, I don't want to be that way. I don't want to be so insecure and I'm always so defensive and making a case against everybody and I wonder why I push people away without even knowing it. I don't like that at all. I'm not going to read that anymore. Sometimes when you eat the, you eat the word, it's bitter, it's brutal because it confronts you with your own strongholds that are in your life, but it, it leads to freedom. Why wouldn't we want it? Well, we have to believe it leads to freedom and not to shackle. Some people see religion and they say, well, I don't want to do that. Well, are you going to study the Bible? Well, I don't want to study the Bible. Why? Because they see it as shackles, not as a door to freedom. They, they see this right here as shackles in some ways because they don't have it taught to them and they don't understand it. Do not eat any, any of it raw or boiled with water but roasted with fire, the spirit. Now catch this, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any over of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner. You wanna know how to do this? You wanna know how to read your Bible? Now, do it today, don't wait. I'll start Bible study when I retire. I'll start studying the Bible when the kids are gone. I'll start studying the Bible when I have more time. I'm really busy right now. I'll start studying when I can get back to cooler weather. I'll start to know, how do you do it? Eat it in this manner. If Jesus is the lamb, God from the chronicles of all the way back to Moses was telling us in advance, eat it like this with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand and eat it in haste. You know what? You know where I really get excited? Somebody gets baptized and then all I see them doing is that their Bible starts looking like this. Every page, every, and there's weeping and bitter herbs as I'm reading this, and I'm going, God, I'm like that? I am like that. Why did I act that way? Oh, oh, Lord. There's no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. And I have all these mixed ideas, and I kind of throw my stuff in there with his stuff. And uh, there's no wisdom, there's no understanding, and there is no counsel against the Lord. I read that, and I go, <laughs> I tried to kind of make a synergy between, you know, what I read here and what I want. Teachers that will tickle our ears. It's easy to gather people. You tell them what they want to hear. Are we telling them what they need to hear? Your friends, your family? Or are we just, do you want your kids or your grandkids just to be happy? I don't. I want them to be connected to the vine. And out of that will come all kinds of beautiful things. And joy will be part of it. And it will make them happy. But I'm not, my goal for my kids and my grandkids is not just for them to be happy. I want them to eat the whole thing. So, what does it mean it's the Lord's Passover? Do you want to be passed over? Because in, the, in Revelation, in, in the entire Bible, the word lamb is used 184 times. Almost 150 of the lamb references are in the Old Testament. 30 of the lamb references are in the last book of Revelation. 
And it's used in various points. As we just alluded, John chapter 1, verse 29 and verse 36 as well. We've alluded to that. The lamb is just ubiquitous throughout the, the narrative of Scripture. But allow me to say, once you get to the end of the story, you get a lamb in Revelation. You get a lamb who was slain. You, you see that. We read that a minute ago. Slain before the foundations of the earth. But you also get a lamb that's standing with 144,000 on, on, on Mount Zion. And then, you get, and then you get, now catch this, and then you get the wrath of the lamb. See, a lot of people don't want to see the lamb. You just, you know, shave me, shave me. And then you shave them, and they, they're naked, and they walk around, you know. And you don't think, that's not very intimidating. But then you see the book of Revelation, and what do you see? The wrath of the lamb? I mean, that odd? It's like the, the wrath of a toddler, you know, the wrath of an, the wrath of an infant, well I, have, well, I actually have a toddler now, so maybe that's appropriate. But anyway, you, 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 you get that, right? The wrath of the lamb and then the slain lamb and what, what, what is it? Well, Jesus is going to come back. And he, he was very clear in John chapter 5. He said, all judgment has been given over to me from the Father. Over and over, Jesus is claiming, a judgment's coming to me. Remember, and by, just by saying it's the Son of Man, he was already claiming to what? to be the one in whom the Father, the, the Ancient of Days, is going to give all authority and dominion and power. When you go to Revelation and you see the Lamb on a throne, what do you think that means? It's a picture of His ability to judge and to determine. In Corinthians, in Paul's letter to Corinthians, the third chapter, it talks about the judgment seat of Christ. And I'll add, the Lamb. Think of it as the judgment seat of the Lamb. Jesus is so loving and so kind and has given this, it's called the age of grace. You have an opportunity to come in and follow him today and be forgiven and be all your sins removed and be clothed in his righteousness because of the blood he shed. But don't just imagine that you can deal with lamb as you would, well, <laughs> shave me. No, 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 deal with the lamb who's coming back in wrath to set all things wrong, right. And imagine this, please. Why would he do that? Because all tears will be removed and the lion will lie down with the lamb. And they won't even have need of a son because the brightness of, well, and the trees for healing and just go read it, Revelation 21 and 22. You're passed over. Passed over from what? Ultimately, the wrath of the Lamb, the one who has all judgment. And what's even stranger is that in John chapter 8, Jesus says, and in fact, I won't even judge you. It's the word that I have spoken which will judge you in the end. Jeff, I don't like going to a church that talks about judgment. Eat the whole thing. Read it. Read it. It's the whole story. Jesus came that he might destroy the works of the devil, that he might eliminate that from your life. And then finally, if you do it in haste, I'm going to go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I'm going to strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, 
both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. All the pathetic gods that put them up as themselves up as gods. Every bit of counsel and wisdom, quote unquote, and understanding that rises up against the Lord will be put down one day. We won't have to be the marginalized or the people who are made to look like absurd, you know, odd, you know, characters in some cartoon, you know, evangelicals, such a strange lot and such a bunch of weirdos that finally it'll be seen, it'll be, the, it'll be the loving, beautiful Jesus, but also the wrath of the Lamb. But then once the wrath of the Lamb has come, it's no longer needed because now from then on and forevermore, we won't have chaos and anarchy and problems and homelessness and child abuse and anger and pornography and all the other stuff. We won't have it anymore. If you don't have the wrath of the lamb, then you still have that. I don't want to live in that. I don't want to live in Earth 2.0, do you? I'd want to go ahead and just cease to exist if I had to do this forever and ever. Thank God I don't have to play God for the rest of my life. Okay, so verse 13, here's the close. And the blood's going to be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I'm going to pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. He is coming back. There will be the wrath of the Lamb. And he's going to set all things right. It's, he's coming back to set up beauty, not to just set up. See, when we think of judgment, we think of bad things. And some, that's happened in some of our cities today. Let's, let's get rid of all judgment. And what happens with that? People move out because chaos breaks out. Anarchy rules the streets. I'm not making a political statement. I'm making what I perceive to be incredibly obvious. I know there's, mis there's injustice that happens, but that's earthly judgment with fallen people, of course. I'm not making a statement. Yeah, they're, they're bad cops and they're good cops and all that, but in the end, you gotta have them down here. It's chaos down here. But one day, all that'll be eliminated. And there will only be people who now worship and have the very spirit of Jesus. And the Bible says we will see him as he is and we will become like him. Can you imagine that? Think of the person you love the most on the earth. Are they Jesus? Not even close. But thinking about everybody that you meet is Jesus. You don't think that's going to be great? Well, that's the forever kingdom that's being talked about here. Look, this will change. And I'm going to ask you again. I'm going to ask you a very simple question. Have you taken the lamb into your house? Have you done your due diligence? Have you counted the cost of what it would be like to follow the lamb now, today, in haste? And if you have not, you have that opportunity to embrace and apply the blood of, the, of Jesus. And it's simple. Don't, don't think it's a bunch of hoops to Jesus, I believe in you. I repent, I tur I'm, turning my, I'm turning my ship around today, now, now. And I'm gonna follow you wherever you go and I'm gonna be baptized and I'm gonna 
be forgiven of all my sin and I choose to follow the Lamb now and to move into the fullness of the calling you have for my life and I know I'm just gonna be hard. There are gonna be bitter herbs in this process but I don't care because I know it's true. Maybe that's you today and you've never been there before then I'm asking you, consider it. Think deeply about it and do it now. The weight of eternity is, is in that decision. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning. You're the lamb worthy of all honor and all praise and all glory. You're already seated at the right hand of the Father. One day it will be manifested and we want to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.